Let's turn in our Bibles to Genesis chapter 41. Genesis 41. There is a, an outline handout on the back table if you missed it. And this sermon today I decided to split into two parts. So we'll do part this morning and part this afternoon. And we'll pick back up with our afternoon First Thessalonians series another time. So this handout will be useful for both services. Hang on to it once you have it. Genesis 41. It's not at all the climax or the end of Joseph's story. But it is a high point after a very low point. Joseph, of course, Jacob's favorite son, the son of his old age, envied, hated by his brothers. He was wrongfully sold by his own brothers into slavery in a far-off land, far from the land of promise in Egypt. He was slave to Potiphar, Pharaoh's captain of the guard, an Egyptian aristocrat, member of the royal court. He prospered there, even as a slave, was made eventually put in charge of all that Potiphar had except the food that he ate. Uh, And there was no one greater in Potiphar's house other than Potiphar, uh, no one greater than Joseph. But then he was lied about by Potiphar's wife when uh, he wouldn't yield to her seductions. Uh, He was accused of a crime he did not commit, assaulting Potiphar's wife, and so he was thrown by Potiphar into... The, the prison, the special prison for the Pharaoh's prisoners. Potiphar was in the bureaucracy in charge, it, it seems, of this place. But in prison, again, as the Lord had been with Joseph in Potiphar's house, the Lord was with Joseph in prison. And he gave him favor in the sight of the prison keeper. And Joseph ends up, once more, in charge of everything under the, the keeper of the place. He's a prisoner. And yet he's in charge of everything that happens in that prison. Nothing happens without Joseph. Last time, chapter 40, we saw a glimmer of hope perhaps for Joseph as two of Pharaoh's officials, the cupbearer and the baker, were thrown into the same prison and Joseph was put in charge of them. And Joseph had the opportunity, by God's special help, to interpret the dreams that these men both had on the same night. And the the interpretation obviously came true three days later. Both men were were released, one to be put back in his former position as cupbearer, the other, the baker, to be executed. Joseph was demonstrated to be a true prophet of the Lord who told the truth that God was revealing whether or not people wanted to hear it. But Joseph had asked the cupbearer to bring his case up to Pharaoh, his unjust imprisonment, In fact, Joseph shared that he'd been stolen out of his homeland of the Hebrews. Joseph asked the cupbearer, when this interpretation that I'm giving you from God comes true, remember me before Pharaoh, when it goes well with you. But that chapter ended by saying, yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. One glimmer of hope, that hope's dashed. Two years Two years more, Joseph is stuck in the prison with no hope. Beyond God's revelation to him early in life that one day his family would somehow bow before him. Now we get to chapter 41. And it's time for God to begin fulfilling all the good things he had indicated about Joseph. So the big idea as we work our way through this text is going to be this. God exalted Joseph as the nation's, that's plural, as the nation's savior from famine. God exalted Joseph as the nation's savior from famine. Let's look at the account in the text. We'll break it into three parts. Um, We'll have smaller sections in these parts that we comment on one by one. But the first big part here is, it's a big chunk. It's verses 1 through 36 where Joseph interprets Pharaoh's dreams 
when no one else can. The scene shifts from the prison, leaves Joseph there for the moment, shifts to the palace, back where the cupbearer has been for a couple of years again. And in verse 1, starting there, we see that Pharaoh has two dreams, a familiar theme in the story of Joseph, someone having two dreams. Verse 1, after two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile. And behold, there came up out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump, and they fed in the reed grass. And behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them and stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. And the ugly, thin cows ate up the seven attractive, plump cows. And Pharaoh awoke. And he fell asleep and dreamed a second time. And behold, seven ears of grain, plump and good, were growing on one stalk. And behold, after them sprouted seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump, full ears. And Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. So in the morning his spirit was troubled, and he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. Let's pause there. <coughs> Excuse me. What is the one central feature, physically and otherwise, of the land of Egypt? The Nile River, right? So Pharaoh's dreams, in Pharaoh's dreams, he, he is standing by the bank of the Nile River, without which Egypt would be a desolate wasteland, a desert. The Nile, uh, and all the way from ancient times, the Nile flowing from the south in the heart of Africa, it flows north through Egypt, and there are these regular, there are supposed to be these regular cycles of flooding that make the land of Egypt, um, uh, that make it fertile, that enable the Egyptians to cultivate it. And so, especially in ancient times, they were very dependent on the Nile River for their food, for, for their entire situation there as a nation. So Pharaoh's dreaming that he's standing by the Nile, First of all, he has this dream in that setting uh, of seven cows that look like wonderful, fat, well-fed cows, followed by seven cows that are the worst cows, as Pharaoh later says to Joseph. They're the worst he's ever seen. Uh, rather, he says, I've never seen such bad cows in all Egypt, such thin, emaciated things. Ugly. He mentions that... Uh, the cows come up out of the Nile. That's a familiar uh, scene in Egypt of the day. Um, the cows like to stand almost submerged in the river. Um, it's a refuge from the heat and the flies. And then they'll come up to, to graze in the papyrus beds, the, in the reed grass, as it says. But the seven good cows come up first, then the seven ugly thin cows come up and eat, devour, swallow the seven attractive cows. That doesn't sound like a good sign in a dream. Pharaoh wakes up. And remember, in ancient Egypt, um, of course, at least in this setting, it, it was true, this was a message from God, but in ancient Egypt in general... Uh, there was great importance attached to dreams, especially if Pharaoh was having a dream, right? <laughs> the gods, you could find out secret information from the realm of the gods through dreams. So this, this first dream is bad enough, disturbing enough. Pharaoh wakes up. He falls asleep again and he dreams a second time. This time it's seven ears of good grain, plump and good, growing on one stalk. After they've sprouted, seven thin and blighted ears of grain grow on, a, on the stalk, and they swallow, it says, the seven plump full ears. Similar idea, but now it's ears of grain, not cattle. So Pharaoh wakes up a second time. 
So, naturally, what does he do? If he has a dream, he has an official staff for this. He calls all Egypt's magicians. This was a priestly caste who studied these things, this art, this science, this magical science as they saw it. He summoned his court magicians and all the wise men of Egypt. But they couldn't make heads or tails of his dream, his dreams, apparently. There was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. They had one job to do. They couldn't do their job. How embarrassing. What's Pharaoh going to do about this? This is even more disturbing. Of course, we see that sort of a scene repeated later in Nebuchadnezzar's court in Babylon. (laughs) This is a recurring theme in Scripture. The befuddled, supposedly wise men of the world. And then some humble servant of of God, of the true God, comes in and shows them all up. But, um, as I said, the magicians is actually, uh, here in the Hebrew, it's a word borrowed from the Egyptians, referring to these experts in handling the ritual books of priestcraft and magic. But all the king's priests, the magicians, and all the king's wise men were useless to interpret his dreams. That's when the cupbearer finally remembers. He finally remembers Joseph. Remember, he's back in the royal court. The cupbearer was very close, usually, to the monarch uh, in relationship. That brings us to verse 9. So let's read verses 9 through 13 at this point. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I remember my offenses today. When Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me and the chief baker in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, we dreamed on the same night, he and I, each having a dream with its own interpretation. A young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. When we told him, he interpreted our dreams to us, giving an interpretation to each man according to his dream. And as he interpreted to us, so it came about. I was restored to my office and the baker was hanged. So now, at the best possible time, God turns the cupbearer's mind to the man whom he should have mentioned to Pharaoh two years ago. So on the one hand, this was a fault on the part of the cupbearer in just forgetting about Joseph and his request to remember him to Pharaoh. On the other hand, this was God's providentially perfect plan. And the cupbearer remembers another situation in which he had no access to the court magicians and wise men. And he said, this this Hebrew gave me an interpretation that came exactly to pass. Not only to me, but to the baker. When the news was bad for him, he tells this to Pharaoh. So verse 14. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes... He came in before Pharaoh, and Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, and there is no one who can interpret it. I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph answered Pharaoh, It is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Behold, in my dream I was standing on the banks of the Nile. Seven cows, plump and attractive, came up out of the Nile and fed in the reed grass. Seven other cows came up after them, poor and very ugly and thin, such as I had never seen in all the land of Egypt. And the thin, ugly cows ate up the first seven plump cows, but when they had eaten them, no one would have known that they had eaten them, for they were still as ugly as at the beginning. Then I awoke. I also saw in my dream seven ears growing on one stalk, full and good. Seven ears, withered, thin, and blighted by the east wind, sprouted after them, and the thin ears swallowed up the seven good ears. And I told it to the magicians, but there was no one who could explain it to me. Well, let's back up to verse 14. Joseph was brought out of the pit. Pregnant words. Finally, his afflictions, which had begun with a pit, are suddenly over. That quick. He's out. Since the Egyptians were clean-shaven, as opposed to the Semitic peoples from from Asia, uh, we even see this 
on uh, the art from ancient Egyptian monuments and such. The Asiatics uh, would have facial hair and everything. The Egyptians did not. So, since the Egyptians were clean-shaven, Joseph had to be shaved, it says, to be fit to appear in the royal Egyptian court. Um, when he had shaved himself, it says, and changed his clothes, he came before Pharaoh. Again, clothing has been a central theme in Joseph's life. And... Uh, Whereas his coat of many colors or his long flowing robe had gotten him into so much trouble. Now his new clothes reflect a new life of freedom, as John Currid puts it. But he comes before Pharaoh and Pharaoh says, I've heard things about you that that essentially (laughs) that uh, you have some secret power to interpret dreams correctly. There's no one who can interpret the dream I've had. I've heard heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. I've heard you're special, Joseph. And in the Hebrew, Joseph answers Pharaoh, first of all, with one word. Here we have, it is not in me. But that's just one word in the Hebrew. It's very abrupt. Not me. God. I believe that's the very next word in the Hebrew text. But it's certainly placed in a position of emphasis in the word order. Some languages do that. You can change the word order to emphasize something. Not me. God will give Pharaoh an answer of shalom. Uh, A good answer. So Pharaoh recounts the dream to Joseph once Joseph has already said, look, I'm nothing special only because I belong to the true God. Can I offer you anything? But God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. So Pharaoh repeats the details of the, the two dreams, which uh, the way Pharaoh talks about it, he already suspects the two dreams are about the same thing, obviously. We f- find out one extra detail as he tells it again, and that is <clears throat> uh, when the ugly cows had eaten the good cows, they were still as ugly and emaciated as before they eaten. Similarly with the the seven thin ears that swallowed up the, the good ears. And he says, I told it to the magicians, but there was no one who could explain it to me. So now Joseph says to Pharaoh, verse 25, the dream, uh, then Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. <clears throat> the seven good cows are seven years. And the seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one. The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years. And the seven empty ears blighted by the east wind are also seven years of famine. It is as I told Pharaoh. God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. There will come seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt. But after them there will arise seven years of famine. And all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land, and the plenty will be unknown in the land by reason of the famine that will follow, for it will be very severe. In other words, just as the ugly cows were still ugly after they eaten the good cows, just so no one will will remember the good years once this terrible famine has happened. It will be so bad. Verse 32, he says, And the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that the thing is fixed by God. And God will shortly bring it about. In other words, this is not something God is saying he might do if you do something or don't do something. God is simply saying it's fixed. This is what I will do, certainly. Verse 33. Now, therefore, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land and take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years. And let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities and let them keep it. That food shall be a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt so that the land may not perish through famine, through the famine. 
Notice in verses 25, 28, and 32, again, as I mentioned, there's this wording about what God is about to do or something like that. But the fact that Joseph is stressing this is God's unchangeable plan, that's a call to action, according to Joseph. It's not a call to, as Derek Kidder's pointed out, it's not a call to resignation. And so it is with all God's prophets. When God's prophets say, thus says the Lord, this is what he is about to do, and you can't change it, that's not a reason to throw up our hands and say, okay, I guess we heard what's going to happen, so we can despair. (laughs) Or we can just sit back and watch it. No, there's always something to do in response to God's word. That's why he reveals things, even things we cannot change. There's always something to do. And that's what Joseph says. Now, therefore, this is what you should do, Pharaoh, in light of what God has revealed. This is the wise thing to do. In other words, when God reveals something of his unchangeable purposes, it is not that we can shrug off responsibility or give up hope. God reveals his purposes that we may act properly in that knowledge. So, for instance, when he tells us that he has chosen a vast multitude of sinners to redeem. Well, you Calvinists who believe that, you're fatalists. You just sit back and let it happen. (laughs) That's what people say. No, when God reveals that to us, only a wicked heart can persuade us to therefore do nothing for the salvation of sinners. The proper response on our part is to fight for the winning side and seek out sinners with the message of redemption because God has promised, I have many people here for you to find. As he told Paul in Corinth, I have many people in this city. Therefore, go on preaching and don't quit. That's the proper response when God reveals something of his unchangeable plan. It's an encouragement to action because we have a a firm foundation to stand on what God has declared, what God has said. Now, going back to to this particular story, this particular account, in verses 34 through 36, this plan of Joseph's, um, it's very wise. What do people tend to do in years of plenty with a bumper crop? More than they can, uh, getting more than they can use. Having more than they know what to do with. What do people tend to do? Let's throw a party. (laughs) Let's overindulge. Because we don't need anything. We We have more than enough. But Joseph says, during the seven years of plenty, you need to reserve one fifth. There'll be a bumper crop, there'll be way more than enough in those seven years, so reserve a fifth for when you won't have enough, the seven years of famine. So Joseph not only tells Pharaoh the meaning of his dream, but the appropriate response in light of the fact that this is God's revealed truth. So that's gotten us all the way down to verse 36. <clears throat> Again, the, the point of the, this first section has been that Joseph interprets Pharaoh's dreams when no one else can. So, here we get to the second part of the text. In response, Pharaoh exalts Joseph as sovereign and savior. Pharaoh exalts Joseph as sovereign and savior. Verses 37-45. We'll start reading in verse 37. <clears throat> this proposal pleased Pharaoh... And all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this, in whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. The wording there is actually much more interesting than shows up in our English translation. We'll talk about that later. But all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, 
See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand. You know what that meant. Joseph could do things in the Pharaoh's name with his seal from his signet ring. He could put that on documents, on decrees. Joseph's word was the word of the throne, of the crown. So he, he took his signet ring, this is verse 42, from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain about his neck. A gold chain or a gold collar, you see this in ancient Egyptian art. Um, you'd recognize it if you saw it probably. A gold chain or gold collar about his neck, symbol of office and favor. And he made him ride in his second chariot. And they called out before him, Bow the knee! Thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent, no one shall lift up hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name Zaphonath-Paneah. And he gave him in marriage Azanath, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On. So Joseph went out over the land of Egypt. So Pharaoh, in response to Joseph's passing on revelation from God and doing so wisely and with discernment, in response to that, Pharaoh exalts Joseph as sovereign and savior. Now, in verse 38, whether or not he knew the full truth of his words, and he probably didn't, especially being a polytheist, a pagan, he may have said this in a way that would have, in his mind, fit his worldview too. But whether or not he knew the full truth of his words, Pharaoh declared that Joseph's outstanding quality was the Spirit of God dwelling in him. Can we find anyone like this in whom is the Spirit of God? So thus, God received the glory for Joseph's very real discernment and wisdom. And of course, that was made possible partly because Joseph, from the very beginning, gave God all the glory and said, wait a minute, it's not me, it's God. Can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? Verse 40. um, In reference to verse 40, Andrew Steinman mentions, Thus, having been freed from prison, Joseph had gone from being over Potiphar's house to being over Pharaoh's house. Verse 40, Pharaoh says, You shall be over my house. Joseph would be in charge of the Pharaoh's own household. And all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. There will be no one with with higher authority or power in all Egypt, and thus in the ancient world of that day, basically. No one with higher power or authority than you, other than me, because I'm Pharaoh. And I gave you the power. But in verse 40, when it says, All my people shall order themselves as you command, um, that's a difficult thing to translate because it's a Hebrew, uh, sort of a Hebrew idiom, figure of speech. Um, To say they would, All my people shall do homage as you command might be closer for us. Literally, it says, all my people shall kiss on your mouth. But wait, it it sounds different than it means. (laughs) Um, This could either be a homage kiss of a a vassal to a a greater lord, or it could be the idea of kissing the dust and thus prostrating yourself to the ground. And it it doesn't mean probably, literally, I'm going to kiss you on your mouth. It means on your mouth or at your word. We find this um, in this setting other places in Hebrew. At your word, at your command. That's what on your mouth probably means. At your command, they will have to kiss. They will have to do homage. They will have to order themselves as you say. That's the idea. But it's interesting because, of course, we see that elsewhere in Scripture. We'll get back to that. Kiss the son, lest he be angry. 
So when we put all these factors together, all these things Pharaoh is now telling Joseph about his new position. Um, Apparently, Joseph, as Steinman puts it, is made one of ancient Egypt's viziers. (laughs) V-I-Z-I-E-R. Vizier. Um, A vizier's responsibilities included the running of the country, much like a prime minister. Again, I'm quoting Steinman. Lesser officials would report to the vizier. Viziers oversaw the political administration of the kingdom, and all official documents had to have the vizier's seal on them. Traditionally, they also managed the taxation system and monitored the supply of food, something that's emphasized among Joseph's responsibilities. The vizier also ran the pharaoh's household. End of quote. So, at any rate, whether you want to speak of Joseph as a prime minister or something like that, Joseph is second in command in Egypt. And the Pharaoh is going to basically leave, it, leave the day-to-day stuff up to Joseph to run. <laughs> Not only is Joseph going to have a specific role for a specific crisis upcoming, but to accomplish that role, he's going to have a huge role. Only as regards the throne will Pharaoh be greater than Joseph. And, jo- and uh, Pharaoh gives Joseph a new name, zaphnath paneah And uh, scholars debate back and forth the meaning of that name. But John Currid's understanding of the name is at least attractive. This is what he says. To demonstrate the favor that Pharaoh bestows on Joseph, he gives him an Egyptian name. It is zaphnath paneah which literally means God speaks and he lives. This name may reflect the event that has brought Joseph to a position of honor in Egypt. That is, God has spoken through him in the interpretation of a dream, and now Joseph lives. Or it may signify Joseph's new role and status in Egypt. God will speak through him as vizier, and Egypt will survive. Interesting at at any rate. But Pharaoh gives Joseph an Egyptian name, not just to assimilate him to Egyptian culture, but also to exalt him. He doesn't have a despised Hebrew name anymore. He has an Egyptian name of power. And Pharaoh, since Joseph now belongs to Pharaoh, Pharaoh provides him with a wife. He gives Joseph Azanath, who is the daughter of a priest of a city called On. The Greeks called it Heliopolis, city of the sun, near modern-day Cairo. Uh, This was a city where particularly the sun god was worshipped. That's why the Greeks called it Heliopolis. (laughs) Um, and so Potiphera was a priest, probably of the sun god. So he was in the high, a high priestly caste in Egypt. This was to further exalt Joseph. And that city where this priest was from, um, one commentator mentions that it is a city that's famous for uh, seers, for interpreters of dreams, and priests of that sort. So Joseph is suddenly in the highest level of Egyptian society by marriage as well as by appointment. Listen to what Meredith Klein says as he kind of steps back and takes in this scene of Joseph, Joseph's exaltation. He's thinking in terms of the whole book of Genesis. He says, From slave to vizier of Egypt... Astonishing, but a trifle to the God who brings the promised seed from barren wombs and life from the dead. The Lord would later repeat such triumphs in the days of Israel's slavery in the land of Ham, in the rescue of infant Moses from the Nile to be adopted into Pharaoh's household, and in the subsequent pervading of Moses in ordeals of wisdom and power against the court magicians. These were early intimations, he says, of the ultimate triumph of the messianic man-child. He's referring to Revelation 12 there with his wording. Caught up from the cross and his ordeal with the dragon to the throne of God to rule all nations. This is the way God loves to work. From the very bottom, he takes his deliverer and sets him on the very top. It's also interesting to note what had Joseph actually dreamed in the beginning of this story when he was 17 years old? What were his dreams actually indicating? 
would happen. Well, it was just about his family, right? His brothers and then his father and mother and brothers would all bow before him. But that's all Joseph knew from the beginning. He had no clue that Egypt and the world would bow to him. The dreams didn't say that. This was far better than even Joseph's God-given dreams had, had told him before. This is astonishing. Not only Israel and his family, but the whole world would bow. That reminds me of Isaiah 49, verses 6 through 7, which addressed the Messiah, the obedient servant of the Lord. God says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and his Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers. Kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves, because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. Of course, we'll get back to that picture of the Messiah later. Now we get to the last section of the text, verses 46 through 57. 46 through 57. In fruitfulness or famine, Joseph now rules as a wise savior. In fruitfulness or famine, Joseph rules as a wise savior. Look at verse 46. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh... And went through all the land of Egypt. During the seven plentiful years, the earth produced abundantly. And he gathered up all the food of these seven years, which occurred in the land of Egypt, and put the food in the cities. He put in every city the food from the fields around it. And Joseph stored up grain in great abundance, like the sand of the sea, until he ceased to measure it. For it could not be measured. That is, the record keepers in Egypt simply couldn't keep up with the bumper crop at these seven good years. They have these central storehouses at each, in each uh, population center with the fields around it. Joseph is working this out wisely. He's a wise administration. And he, and he didn't just stay in the palace and have just his delegates go and do things. He did delegate responsibility, as he had told Pharaoh a man should do, he, uh, this man should appoint other men. But he didn't just delegate it all away. He himself, it says, went through all the land of Egypt. He went out from the Pharaoh, presence of Pharaoh and went through all the land of Egypt. He saw to all this personally as well. So Joseph is a hands-on administrator. And it's interesting, again, it, no, it notes his age as being 30 years old now. He was 17 when he had forcibly left home. And in another nine years' time, he will again encounter his brothers in Egypt. And the story will come to its climax. It's interesting, roughly that total length of time from when Joseph was sold into slavery until until things are resolved for him with his brothers, roughly that period of time um, was a time of delay, waiting for, for Abraham, his, his great-grandfather, <clears throat> between promise and fulfillment, between the time Abraham entered the promised land and the time he actually had the promised child. Jacob spent roughly that time in the service of Laban. So as Derek Kidner points out, each of these delays was fruitful, but no two were alike in form or purpose. It's not a big point to make, but expect delays in God's plan for you. It's how God often works. And no two delays are the same in their purpose or in how they'll turn out, what the result will be. But they're all for good purposes. Uh, verse 50. Before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. Azmuth, the daughter of Potiphar, a priest of On, bore them to him. 
Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh. That's not an Egyptian name. That's a Hebrew name. Joseph is not trying to forget his Hebrew roots. He's not trying to forget where he came from or the God he used to say he served. Notice how prominently God, the true God, figures in the meaning of these names. Verse 51, Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. The name of the second he called Ephraim. Might mean something like doubly fruitful. For God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. Who does Joseph credit with his success? Pharaoh? The gods of Egypt? No. The God of his fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He gives his sons Hebrew names that will forever show his thankfulness and the praise he gives to the true God. Pharaoh may have been in charge of and in complete control of who Joseph would even marry, since Joseph is practically the slave, the servant of Pharaoh, even as prime minister. Pharaoh may have given him the daughter of a pagan priest to wed, but Joseph is still firm with his eyes fixed on God. Reading on. Verse 53, the seven years of plenty that occurred in the land of Egypt came to an end. And the seven years of famine began to come, as Joseph had said. There was famine in all lands. But in all the land of Egypt, there was bread. When all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, go to Joseph. What he says to you, do. I put Joseph in charge. You don't need to come to me. Go to Joseph. So when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain, because the famine was severe over all the earth. Again, we see Joseph's wisdom in that apparently he, uh, he distributed the grain by sale. Uh, he didn't just give it away. There was an exchange here. Um... People tend to take only what they need when they have to pay for it, right? So Joseph is selling to the Egyptians. And um, and then not only the Egyptians, but all the earth, it says, all lands come to buy food from Egypt, from Joseph specifically. Now this was an unusually and compounded, uh, unusually severe and compounded famine. Because, um, well, I'll just read what Derek Kidner says here. He says, How severe a famine could be in Egypt, which is a thin, fertile strip between deserts, is twice indicated by records of its inhabitants resorting to cannibalism. That is, in, in history. Egypt could have severe famines based on the Nile not doing what it normally did. But because Palestine, the land of Canaan, was watered by rainfall and Egypt by the Nile, the harvest seldom failed simultaneously in both. This time it was only the exertions of one man that averted a multiple disaster. God, in God's plan, there were harsh conditions everywhere in this heart of the ancient world of the time. Because that would drive all lands, all peoples, including the people in Canaan, including Joseph's family, it would drive them all to Joseph in Egypt. They needed him for food. Again, it's it's a common manner of hyperbole, of, of uh, poetic exaggeration to make a point. All the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain. It's not saying the, uh, the people in Central America got on boats and came to Joseph. That's not what it's saying. Um, but you get the point. All lands within sight, at least, had to come to Egypt. And so, in Joseph, as Abraham's offspring already, all the families of the earth are being blessed, aren't they? It's, it's the beginning of an ongoing theme. What a picture of the one mediator between God and men, who is himself the bread of life, through whom alone the world can live and not die. 
So it probably means much more now that we repeat the big idea. God exalted Joseph as the nation's savior from famine. <clears throat> as I'm looking at my notes, I'm all the, all the more happy that I divided this in two. But let's get to the first part of applications of this text. As you see in your notes, eventually we will, we will say there's, and we will see two sides of the applications here. The first side, there are hints of Christ's power. Then this afternoon we'll talk about how there is hope for Christ's people in a different sense here. Right now I want to just focus you in our remaining time on the hints of Christ's power here. We see Christ as prophet and mediator, as well as his role of sovereign ruler here, dimly portrayed, dimly foreshadowed. Now in his book, Joseph and the Gospel of Many Colors, our, our dear brother, Vody Bauckham, has emphasized something about this chapter. He said that Joseph's exaltation by Pharaoh was not the big payoff for Joseph's faith. Joseph was still the servant of a heathen official. He was still exiled from the promised land. Joseph still looked to God's promises to Israel in Canaan. He still commanded that his bones be eventually taken to Canaan. That's where his real hope lay. He gave his sons Hebrew names, not Egyptian names. So Joseph, like the other patriarchs, did not regard the glory of Egypt as his reward. And that's a worthy point to ponder before we go where we're going. So keep this all in perspective. That's all true. That in Joseph's personal story, it's not like, okay, he's reached heaven. This is his paradise. No, that's not the point. Nevertheless, God's spirit guided Moses to record things in such a way that Joseph dimly foreshadowed Christ. These patterns of deliverance in God's plan of redemption. Joseph's position as sovereign savior pointed forward to Jesus Christ, his person, his work. God often raised up deliverers for his people in ways that intentionally hinted at how he would raise up Jesus. So, though Joseph's exaltation by Pharaoh was not Joseph's ultimate victory or his heavenly reward, we can still say that exaltation should remind us of how God would exalt a greater savior after greater suffering. So I'm walking a thin line there, but I think both are true. Once we start to see this, we begin to notice that both Christ's prophetic office and his kingly office are foreshadowed by Joseph. So Christ is prophet and mediator. Again, Joseph's a true prophet of God. He tells the true message from God, whether it's welcome or not. We saw that in the last chapter. Now in chapter 41, Joseph alone could reveal the purposes of God, which were an enigma to everyone else. And so it is with Jesus Christ. He alone can perfectly reveal God to man. And he alone has such an anointing of the Holy Spirit so that he can turn the hearts of men toward God, just as the Spirit of God in Joseph brought Pharaoh to acknowledge the true and living God. Isaiah 11 says this about the coming Messiah. 11, 1 through 5. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. That's David's father, Jesse. And a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Likewise, Isaiah 59 verses 20 to 21 says... Again, that God would put his spirit on the Redeemer. 
And a Redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. And as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit that is upon you, he's addressing this Redeemer, my spirit that is upon you and my words that I have put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. Christ would be marked by the Spirit of God, the fullness of the Spirit, for God gives him the Spirit without measure, the Scripture says. And so he is full of wisdom and discernment. He's a wise Savior. He knows what he's doing. Also, we see Christ as sovereign ruler. Joseph was given the highest level of power and authority in the ancient world, next only to Pharaoh himself. Egypt was the top dog of the day. Doesn't that remind us of the Son of Man who sits now at God's right hand? It should. Daniel seven thirteen through 14 I saw in the night visions... And behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days, God the Father, and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations and languages should should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Reminds me also 1 Corinthians 15. Referring to Christ, verses 27-28. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, to Christ, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. The only one higher than Jesus Christ is God the Father, in the economy of redemption. It's also interesting, Joseph gets a new name. Jesus Christ in Revelation 3.12 mentions the fact that he has a new name. Joseph was given a new Egyptian name as part of his exaltation. But in what sense has Christ been given a new name? Well, His perfect work of redemption has made a name for him, you could say. That's true. That that means Jesus has earned unequaled renown and glory by what he's done. But notice also that it is God the Father who gives, who bestows a name upon the risen Son. The name that's above every name. So here's the picture. As Pharaoh raised Joseph from the pit, To rule the entire kingdom. So God the Father. The sovereign ancient of days. He raises this suffering son of man from the grave. And he gives him the name. The status and authority that is. Which demands that all bow the knee. Philippians 2. 5-11. Have this mind among yourselves. Which is yours in Christ Jesus. Who though he was in the form of God. Did not count equality with God. A thing to be grasped. But emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory of God the Father. Pharaoh said to Joseph, You shall be over my house, and all my people shall kiss at your command. And so has the Lord said to his anointed son, Psalm 2, verse 7 I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage. And the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. And dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son that is due him homage. 
bow the knee. Lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Now as we conclude the morning portion of the sermon, there's something that you have to understand. And it's something that will make all the difference for eternal life or death. Let me ask you a question based on what we the, the story we've gone through today. Once Joseph was exalted with this unchallenged sovereignty and glory under Pharaoh, what kind of a ruler was Joseph? Was he a harsh taskmaster? Or a benevolent savior? The latter, correct? He was a benevolent savior for the people. Did Joseph use his power and glory selfishly? Or did he use it to accomplish what was necessary for the good of the people? Well, it was the latter again, right? Was Joseph a distant bureaucrat who insulated himself from the people and their needs? No, he went through all the land of Egypt. He didn't just delegate authority, but he also saw the things himself. Did Joseph waste his authority on lavish comforts during the years of plenty, as many would have done? Or did he wisely exercise his authority to prepare the people for the coming emergency? The latter. Joseph was a good and wise ruler. He exercised his sovereignty to bring salvation. Now, do you see the emerging portrait? Who is that in the picture? Is that not our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? Why do sinners who hear the gospel still refuse to bow the knee to Jesus? What's the holdup? What's the problem? Well, for any number of reasons, sinners are suspicious of the Savior. At least, they think they can care for themselves better than he can, right? They want to be self-reliant, not throwing themselves on him. For some reason. Friend, if you're holding Jesus at arm's length, you have no idea what you're doing or whom you're refusing. Jesus Christ does not demand your allegiance so that he can cruelly take away all your hard-earned resources. So he can take away your time, your money, your energy, your friends, your comforts. Anything he takes, he richly repays. In fact, he gives far better than he takes. When Jesus demands your soul, your life, your all, and he does... It's so that you won't lose your soul. That's who he is. What will it profit you if you gain the whole world and lose your own soul? What benefit is this for you in the end? If you hold him at arm's length and say no. Yet what are you saying? You're essentially saying if you're refusing Jesus... You stay away from my harvest, Jesus. You have no right to enrich yourself with it. It's mine. When you say that, you're a poor, stubborn fool. Don't you know? Well, for one thing, that he has every right. But also, without him, you'll have nothing but agony and death in the end. The wages of sin is death. That's what comes on payday. Listen to what Jesus says, Matthew eleven twenty seven through 30. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So Jesus has all the authority handed to him by his Father. But hear what he says next. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. 
That is, he is no harsh taskmaster. He has your very best good in mind. Rest for your restless soul. And believers, you who have come to Christ like that for rest, you also need a better grasp of how your Lord Jesus uses his power and glory and authority. None of us really gets it all the way yet. We all need a better grasp of this. Do you reckon day in and day out with the fact that Jesus is not a distant Lord issuing arbitrary edicts from on high? He walks among the lampstands, which are his churches. He holds his people in his hand. He calls his sheep by name. John 10, some selections from John 10. First of all, verses 1 through 4, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. Verse 10. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. And then verses 27 to 29. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Jesus, in his divine nature, as well as by the Holy Spirit that he sent, Jesus is here in this room right now. He's with us. He knows us personally. And he personally lavishes us with his comfort. Gives us his encouragement, his gentle assistance. He gives us his love that's stronger than death. That's what he's doing, even as he instructs and commands us. We can get a really bad attitude sometimes towards the Lord. As if he isn't a good master. Joseph went through all the land of Egypt to personally ensure the people's salvation from famine. But how much better is Jesus? He walks with us each step of the way. He gives us food and drink for our souls. So that one day we can join him where body and soul we will never hunger or thirst again. This is the one that we will be tempted to ignore tomorrow. This is the one whose wisdom we too often doubt. We grumble at his kindness. We distrust his sovereign decisions. He died a cruel death for you. And he'll be at your side at your deathbed, even if no one else is. And he'll be the one to tell death and hell, you have no claim on this person. They're mine. That's your savior. He's personally involved because he loves you. So I want to end with Revelation 7, verses 9 through 10 and 13 through 17. After this, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the lamb, Jesus Christ, slain for them before the lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. Later, verse 13, then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, it said to John in this heavenly vision, 
These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God in heaven and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. That's what Jesus has done for us, but what his plans are for us, too. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that the Lord Jesus exercises his lordship, his authority to save. And to save to the uttermost. And may we be convinced of this fact. Those who need to bow the knee to Jesus for the first time, may they do so because they realize that Jesus saves. And those who belong to Jesus, may we properly esteem our Savior and love him, not resent him in any way or his authority over us. Help us to sweetly bow the knee and embrace him as our personal Savior. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.